There is uh, a word today from the Lord. You heard part of it this morning, but we I want to read more of that passage for you from Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 1, we'll read through verse 14. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. If you're able to, I'd ask you if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. It says this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and the priests, the prophets, and all the people who Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Amen. may be seated. Ah. Really could just give a benediction right there. But I have a responsibility that I must fulfill, so let's let's talk about it a little while. So today, from this passage in the Old Testament writing uh, written by the prophet Jeremiah, I'd like to talk from the subject, How to Behave in Babylon. How to Behave in Babylon. We have spent the past few weeks, as we've been together, uh, highlighting some of the attributes of God. Uh, Just to let you know, God's attributes can be uh, divided into two categories. There are God's communicable attributes, and then there are God's incommunicable attributes. His incommunicable attributes are those which he alone possesses. 
and those which he alone is able to possess. Some of those incommunicable attributes are things like his holiness, his immutability, which means that he doesn't change. He's not like you and I, because I may see you today and you may be one way and tomorrow I may see you and you have absolutely flipped the script on me and I don't know what to expect. God's not like that. He is immutable. He's infinite, which means he has no beginning and he has no end. He's always been and he will always be. We have a beginning and we will have a physical end. He's omnipresent. We can't do that. We can't be in all places at one time. He's omnipotent. He has all power. He's omniscient. He has all wisdom. These are his incommunicable attributes. He is self-existent. He exists within himself, and he doesn't need any outside influence. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from anyone. He is sovereign and he is a spirit, which means that unlike us, he does not have physical form. God is spirit, uh, Jesus says, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He is not like us in those regards. He is spirit. These are his incommunicable attributes, but there are also some communicable attributes. These are the ones that we have the privilege of sharing with God, given the fact that we are made in his image and after his likeness. You do know that we are made in his image and after his likeness. He says so in Genesis, he made us in his image and after his likeness. And because of this, there are some things that we are allowed to share with God. Some of his communicable attributes, things like goodness, things like compassion, justice. Wisdom, knowledge, love, rationality. He gives us the ability to rationalize. Mercy. Some of us don't know that word. Some of us don't extend much of that. <laughs> we talked about it this morning in Sunday school, how the Pharisees weren't willing, Brother Sam, to extend any mercy to the Gentiles. And we also talked about this morning, Brother John taught us that uh, we've got some pharisaical Christians in the church today that don't know anything about grace and mercy. God allows us to have this communicable attribute, mercy, accountability. We, we, we have that God is, is the picture of accountability, and he allows us to have this attribute. I said, now, whether or not we choose to live it out, is a, we, we, we have the opportunity to have that. And watch this, responsibility. This is one of those communicable attributes that God allows us to share with him, to be responsible. If we watch him, we can learn from him that responsibility is something that we all should have. So today, I'd like to pause briefly in our examination of the attributes of God to discuss how, since we have been made in his image, these communicable attributes should be present and recognizable in us. 
Oh, they should be there. They should be, they should be active and alive. They should be present. I should be able to see you and see some of these things in your life. They should be recognizable in us. And to do this, I'd like to invite you to travel back in time with me to ancient Babylon. Somewhere around the year 597 B.C. Babylon then was one of the most splendid cities of the ancient world. Its origin, Babylon's origin, can be traced back to Genesis chapter 11, where after the flood, you'll recall, in the land of Shinar, men became arrogant and said to themselves, you have to be careful with that self-talk, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name. Origin of Babylon. It, and the Lord said in response to what these men said in Genesis, Genesis 11, the people are one and have one language and this is what they have chosen to do. What will they think of next? Let us go down and confound their language so that they can not understand each other. Uh, this is the origin of Babylon. The city uh, then became known as Babel, which means in itself confusion or to confound. Babylon became a model of paganism and idolatry. God, in fact, eventually made good on his promise to have Babylon destroyed as he eventually destroyed the city of Babylon. Today, though, the ruins of the ancient city of Babylon, which is about 30 miles southwest of modern Baghdad, Iraq, stand as an eloquent testimony to the passing of proud empires and the providential hand of God in history. God's hand is at work. God is true to what he says. His hand, how many of you know his hand is, his providential hand is at work. Physical Babylon was indeed destroyed, just as God said it would be. But might I suggest to you that Babylon is more than a physical location. As we discuss it today, it's more than just a place on the map. I submit to you that Babylon, as we look at it today, is more than that. I, I su su suggest and submit that it's a mindset. It's a philosophical ideology that exists in the minds of some. It's a, it, it can be a, a spiritual stronghold. In fact, in Revelation 17, Babylon represents an idolatrous anti-God civilization that has global reach and is marked by, watch this, violence, terrorism, moral decline, and all kinds of upheaval. Now, I can see it in your faces. Some of you think, thinking like I'm, I was thinking when I wrote this. This sounds an awful lot. Are y'all going to help me? Y'all too quiet today now. Usually, Brother Sam, I need your help. Are y'all thinking like I'm thinking? What, what, does, what, what does what I just described sound like to you? Based on this description, let me help you. Based on this description, I think you would agree that it wouldn't be much of a stretch at all 
to say that the times we're living in can be characterized as a modern-day Babylon. Let me run down that list one more time so that maybe if you didn't catch it before, you can catch it this time. It's marked by violence. Anybody seen any violence on TV lately? It's marked by terrorism. Is that anywhere? Is that happening anywhere? What about moral decline? What about all kinds of upheaval? If any of you are sitting there saying that doesn't sound familiar, then I need to bring you up to modern times and I'll get you an iPad, a computer, a TV, hook you up to the internet so that you can get out a little bit more and see that, that what we're living in, the times that we're living in today can be and, and should be characterized if we look at Babylon as a mindset, as a stronghold, as an ideology. What we're living in right now sounds like modern Babylon. Here's, but but there's, it, 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 it leads us to a question. Here's the question. Here's the question. Since we have all agreed, you all agree with me, right? That we are in that. Here's the question. Since we've agreed on that, then what do we do while we're here? If we have agreed that that's the times that we're living in, there has to be something that we should be doing. How are we to behave in Babylon? In our text, God allowed Judah to be taken into captivity in Babylon because of their disobedience. They were, God says, to be there 70 years. 70 years. Without, here's some of the reason, without exception, the residents of Jerusalem had resisted the Lord's discipline and rebelled against his commandments. Idolatry and sexual immorality were prevalent throughout the land. The people believed the false prophets. Rich, powerful men exploited others and neglected the cause of the weak and oppressed. Instead of repenting and recognizing God as the source of their blessings, the people stubbornly continued in their sinful ways. As a result, they found themselves in self-inflicted and self-imposed captivity in Babylon. They were non-Babylonians living in Babylon. Reminds me of this Greek word, ekklesia, which means the called out body, the church, the assembly, the congregation. Uh, it reminds me of that word because what it, what, it, what it gives us a picture of is this body of God's people who are in the midst of a situation, but they still are, although they have been obedient and they have fallen away, they still are recognized as God's group of people but they find themselves even being called out and separate in this place, non-Babylonians in Babylon, kind of like us. We're in this world. Somebody help me. But we're not of this world. We're, we're, we're in this. God says, you got to be here, but you don't have to be of here. You got to live here, but you don't have to 
uh, get too comfortable here. We're here, but we're not of here. Babylon was not home. It was temporary. I'm just a pilgrim passing through this barren land. I'm on my way somewhere. This is, it was temporary for them. It was not home. Jerusalem was home. Like us, this is just temporary. We're looking forward not to Jerusalem. We're looking forward to the new Jerusalem. Amen, somebody. I, I read about it. It says that there are streets that are paved with walls of jasper, gates with pearls. It's, every day is going to be an opportunity to praise the Lord. There'll be no nighttime. We are just in a temporary condition. New Jerusalem is our home. People of Judah were looking forward to returning home just like we are. In fact, in chapter 28, Hananiah, who's a false prophet, he, he, see, he prophesies falsely to the people. I need to pause right here and share something with you. This is not in the notes. Beware of false prophets. Let me, let me make it plainer. Beware of folks that tell you they got a word for you. The Lord told me to tell you, right? I can stand here and prophesy over this room. Somebody here having health problems. The Lord told me to tell you, <laughs> you're going to be healed today because I know you got back problems. In the room this size, somebody in here has got back problems. Somebody, the Lord told me to tell you, your financial problems are over. Somebody here can't pay their bills in the room, in a room this size. Somebody's not able to pay their bills because they've been irresponsible. I'm sorry if, I'm, if that's you, but <laughs> I'm trying to prophesy. Beware, folks, that run. L listen, one thing that turns me off immediately, I'm just telling you now, don't come to me telling me that the Lord gave you in a dream last night this to tell me. Because you know what? We're in, we're, you know what we're in right now? We are the New Testament church. And you know what that means? Because we are the New Testament church. We have something that the Old Testament church didn't have. You know what that is? It is the priesthood, somebody help me, of the believer, Brother Dennis. That means I don't need nobody. I can go to the Lord myself. And if he wants to tell me something, He'll, he'll come into my dream. <laughs> Hannah and I prophesied falsely to the people that they would return home. All of the things that were taken from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar would be returned in two years. They were excited. Two years. They were excited because of what this False prophet said, but until they found out the truth, and the truth was that God had declared that it would be not two years, but 70 years. But you know what happens 
Same thing happened to them that happens to us. We have itching ears and we want our fancy to be tickled. Right? And so two years sounds a lot better than 70. But I serve a God who knows what he's doing. I don't, it's not my job, it's not my responsibility to give you candy-coated sermons to teach. It's not my word to prophesy candy-coated things. It's not my word to say to you things that I think you might want. You know what? You know what the preacher's job? You know what? Not just the preacher. You know what your job is? To tell the truth. To speak the word. Right? No matter how difficult it may be, no matter, no matter how hard of a pill it may be to swallow, but Hananiah says to them, and, and, and this is what oftentimes makes for popular popularity. Got to slow down a little bit. It makes for popularity. It is what causes popularity. When I can tell you with a smile on my face, I can smile at you and tell you everything's going to be all right. Don't worry about sin. We're not going to talk about that. Don't worry about disobedience. God is not worried about that. Okay, I'm not going to mess with nobody. It's all about living your best life now with a smile. And if I do that, I've got thousands. I've got millions. But if I tell you that all of sin and come short of the glory of God, I've got a few. Right? Hananiah says, with a smile on his face, it's going to be two years. God says, no. So Jeremiah, what, what happens is Jeremiah then writes a letter to the people who are in captivity to clear things up. And not only to clear things up, he writes this letter to clear, clear up this lie, but to also give them their daily to-do list while they're in Babylon. Jeremiah, for those of you that don't know, and I know that many of you do, Jeremiah was the major prophet during the decline and fall of Judah's southern kingdom. He prophesied during the reigns of the last five kings of Judah. He was a prophet of doom whose ministry consisted of tearing down and rebuilding. He was known as the weeping prophet because he shed tears over the sins of of his people. So Jeremiah wasn't one of those that always had a smile on his face, right? He knew the, the implications of what was going on in the people and it caused him to weep along with being the primary author of this book that bears his name. He's also credited with writing the book of Lamentations. The word Lamentations actually means weeping. He was an emotional prophet. He, he, had, he had his heart invested in the people. He wanted what was best for them. So he writes this letter to regrettably inform them of their plight and instruct them in their daily duties. You do know that in Babylon, 
their daily duties for the believer, the non-Babylonians. You know that there are daily responsibilities and a daily to-do list. There, in other words, there is work to do. There's work to do every day. There's what the Lord, the Lord does not give us a pass just because we live in difficult times. He doesn't give us a pass. He, he does not allow us to sit down. He, he doesn't allow us to take a break. He says, even in Babylon, there are things that we must do. He doesn't, he doesn't give us a pass. But before, watch this, before we talk about what to do, let me just say a word about what not to do. Because <laughs> there are some of those things too. Uh, it was Ambrose, Archbishop of Milan, who coined the phrase, while in Rome, do as the Romans. See, y'all know that, don't you? Because you've heard it so much. That's, it, it, it began as good advice to St. Augustine and others on how to interact with local churches. But over time, the saying has been perverted to where the premise is that when you are in a certain place, you must go with the flow or do something simply because everybody else is doing it. That's what we think when in Rome do as the Romans do mean. That's what we think it means. That's what we think. We think that's what, that's what those uh, are not for the believer, even in Babylon, those are not our marching orders. It's not when in Rome do what, it's not when in Tyler do what, it's not when wherever you are do what everybody else is doing. Right? That's not, that's what not to do. We can't capitulate to the culture and become uh, like what Dr. Jerry Vines, the Southern Baptist pastor, well-known says, he says, we can't become canonized. He's making reference to the last verse in the book of Judges where it says, uh, in those times there was no king in the land and people, men did what, what was right in their own eyes. They had the, the last book, the last verse rather, in the book of Judges is that's how the book of Judges ends. In, in those days, there was no king in the land and men did that which was right in their own eyes. And Dr. Vine says they had become Canaanized. They had capitulated to the culture. That is what we are not to do, right? You don't, don't, don't do that. Uh, there are some things that we, the church, must do while in Babylon. Can I give them to you? Some things that we must do. Uh, let's read verses 5 and 6 real quick. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 29 says this. It says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. You know what it is that we, one of the, one of the first things that we must do? We must be productive while we're here. 
That same thing Jeremiah tells the people of Judah. He says to them, you have, even though times are difficult, our responsibility, even in difficult times, is to be productive every day. Be productive. God's word to them was to prepare for a long stay. So he may not always deliver us out of something immediately, but he wants us to be productive while we're in it. You've heard this saying, bloom, somebody finish it, where you planted, right? He says, no matter what's going on around you, be productive. Make the best of a bad situation, right? Take lemons When life gives you lemons, we know that lemons are sour. They're bitter, right? Not many people, some. Some of y'all like to suck on lemons, and I can tell by looks on y'all's face. <laughs> some folks do, but I can't stand to just suck on it. I need some sugar or something in it. You know what lemonade is? Lemonade is a lemon that's bitter and sour, and then there's some sweet stuff added to it, and it's suddenly from being sour and bitter, suddenly it tastes sweet. And God says, when life gives you the lemon of being in a difficult situation, take that thing, put some stuff in it. Make it sweet. Make something good out of it. Be productive. Build houses, he says. Settle down. You're going to be here a while. <laughs> right? Don't get impatient. Be, be, be patient. Plant gardens to sustain yourself. Don't give up on life. You got to eat. You got to have somewhere to live. Be productive, he says. We are as believers to be the light of the world. Or the light of this city, right? Salt of the earth. Hope, name of our campus, in despair. We should represent the hope of God, the light of God, right? Be productive. We are to be the model of productivity, right? It, it, that, that's what being productive will, for them and for us, be a good witness to the Babylonians. Babylonians, whatever, if we're talking literal Babylonians in our text or we're talking figurative Babylonians in our city. I'm not talking down on anybody. I'm just saying non-believers. When they see the believers who claim to have the answer, believers who say that we once were beggars looking for bread, we found that bread. Let me tell you where that bread is. We lose our witness when they see us complaining and moaning and being down and out and not being productive, not going to work, not building, not multiplying. They see that and it's a bad witness. So God says through Jeremiah, Tell them, write to them, and tell them you're not going anywhere anytime soon. So you might as well get comfortable, but while you're getting comfortable, be productive. Build some things. Being productive is a good witness. But watch this. Not only are we to, to produce, verse 6 says that we ought to reproduce. <laughs> Isn't that something? Uh, uh, it's, look at what verse 6, take wives and sons and daughters. 
take wives of your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. We all know what that means, right? In, in a physical sense. But what about in a spiritual sense? You know what it means? It means that we should be reproducing and multiplying other believers. We should be growing. The church should be growing because of us. Those that followed God should have been increasing in Babylon because of the non-Babylonians. You remember the story we talked about a couple weeks ago, Daniel and his three buddies? And you remember how they looked and they couldn't find any offense against Daniel, against his but except where it pertained to their God. They were faithful to their God and their enemies recognized that. And it caused the king in both those instances to for a moment, even if it was for a brief moment, to consider the God of Daniel, Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego because he saw the commitment that they had and the productivity that they had. It's a good witness for those that are watching us. Uh, so we should multiply, right? We should be reproducing and we should be productive. But not only that, second thing I want to show you is in verse 7. And in verse 7, I want to talk about this. Not only should we be productive, we should also be proactive. Look at verse 7. The first part of it says, But seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile. We should be proactive versus reactive. Jeremiah says, Seek the welfare or the peace of the city. I want to talk about that word real quick, the word seek. For us, when we see this word seek in English, it essentially means just look for it. But this is not seek as we know it. It is the Hebrew word darash. Everybody say darash. It's not a passive word. It means to actively inquire about, actively investigate, to be intent on or to demand something. It's an action word requires action and initiative, we should seek out ways actively to increase the peace and better the welfare of our city. Ways like what we talked about this morning, helping the homeless, providing something for those that are not as fortunate as we are. Rather than waiting, here's what we often do. We wait for somebody to say they need help. And then sometimes we still don't help, but, at least, but, but oftentimes we'll wait on somebody. Rather than doing, that's not being proactive. That's being reactive, right? We wait on it. We, we, should, we should not do that. We should seek out ways to increase the peace rather than waiting on something to happen or waiting on a request for assistance and then responding to it. We should just recognize right here or right there in Babylon, God says, recognize that there are needs all around you. You don't have to wait if you see me on the side of the street and I look like I haven't eaten in a month and I can barely walk and I can barely get up, I don't have to tell you I need help. Hello, somebody. 
If you see me sleeping under a bridge, I'm not telling you to take homeless folks into your home, but you know they need help. The reason why we're trying to help, right? So he says, be proactive. Isaiah and Jesus, the prophet Isaiah and Jesus gives us a blueprint for proactive proactivity and productivity. Isaiah reminds us in chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 that the church must deal with man's ultimate concerns. He says, the spirit of the Lord, God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn. That's our duty. Jesus says it this way as he deals with more of the physical concern in Matthew 25. He says, we must endeavor to feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, take in the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the sick and the incarcerated. So how do we be proactive? Those are some ways that we can be proactive. We must be proactive and do, do these things because in the grand scheme, we're all in it together. We're all in it together. I'm reminded of something, a uh, quote, famous quote from Dr. King. Dr. King says this, we must all learn to live together as brothers or we will all perish together as fools. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. We're all in this together. We must be productive. We must be proactive. Uh, then I see something else, and that is that we must be prayerful. The second part of verse 7. second part of verse 7 says this, And pray to the Lord on the city's behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We've got to be people of prayer. Second Chronicles, that all familiar verse on prayer says this, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Prayer is a powerful tool. We should never stop praying. Jesus in Luke 18 and 1 says, men ought to always pray and not faint, not lose heart. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, pray without ceasing. Paul in Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, but uh, be careful for nothing but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God that passeth all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind through Christ Jesus. We have got to be people of prayer. James says the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous availeth much. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount as he has just finished teaching on prayer gives the listeners, the students a model to follow. He gives it to us. All of us know it. Jesus says, here's the model. You need to pray. And when you pray, use this format. Our Father, child in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever and ever. We've got to be people of prayer. That's how we behave. 
in Babylon. Lastly, we must be productive. We've got to be proactive and we must be people of prayer. Y'all like those peas? I know sometimes people get tired of alliteration. Every now and then I like to do that. Sometimes it helps for you to remember. Because <laughs> watch this, it's dangerous for the preacher to preach a message that nobody remembers during lunch after church. Can I tell y'all a quick joke? I know time is running short. But can I tell you, I need, I need to tell you this before I get to this last one. I remember the time I was uh, serving as pastor in Fort Worth. And the deacons and I went out to visit someone in the hospital that was sick, member of our church. A couple of deacons and me, we in the hospital room, we visiting. And one of the deacons who was a great brother, great faithful deacon, he, he, was, he was going on and on and on about the message to the person in the hospital bed. Oh, you should have been there today. Part of pastor, really priest. Oh, oh, he brought a word today. And the person said, what did he preach about? Deacon was like, uh, well, he, he preached today. I mean, uh, and I'm standing there like, you mean to tell me that was an hour ago? You, he couldn't even give the text, let alone the title and the points. So I'm just saying, every now and then it helps because our minds work that way. I know mine does, so please, I know everybody don't like it. But can I just give you one more peek? So maybe if you go out to lunch somewhere and you talk about how that preacher just bombed today and he did, he did a terrible job and then somebody asks you, well, what was the message? At least you'll be able to give him a couple of peas. <laughs> so, so Jeremiah says you've got to be productive. You've got to be proactive. You have got to do it. You've got to uh, be those things. You've got to pray. But then he says, here's the reason why. Because God has a plan. That's the reason why. God has a plan for all of us. His plan is announced in verse 11. And it is explained in verses 10, 12, 13, and 14. In verse 11, it says, For I know the plans I have for you. In other words, God's saying to the people by way of this letter, I have not forgotten about you. He's saying it to us too. He says it to the people of Judah. Listen, I know it's tough. I know it's difficult. But I have not forgotten about. I know, where you, I know exactly where you are. I know exactly what you're going through. There is a hope and a future. Right? Jeremiah did see a light at the end of the tunnel. God would someday judge Judah's enemies, including the mighty Babylonians. He would restore his exiled people and make a new covenant with them, enabling them to willingly obey his commandment. This was his plan for them. The plan is, 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 is revealed in verse 11. Uh, there was bad news for them. We already know that, right? Bad news was uh, it's going to be a while. <laughs> going to be a while. Good news. That was good news though too. Good news was this. You're going to make it. Bad news. It's going to be a while. Good news. You're going to make it. There, there's an appointed time for your escape. Right? Uh, there is, an, it may be 70 years like it was for, Babel, for, for those in Babylon. Or it may be seven minutes. I don't know. It might be seven seconds. There is an appointed time. God, and I'm not telling you that like God told me to tell you. <laughs> Don't leave here saying, now nah, he up there talking about them and he's saying it. 
I'm not I'm saying I don't know when it is. I'm just saying there is an appointed time. According to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God will make a way of escape for you. There is no temptation that's given to man. Right? God will make an, a way of escape for you. There's an appointed time. Just God is concerned about one thing you can rest assured of is that God is concerned about you. You know that God is concerned about you. Just in verses 8 through 14, the words you are your is used 20 times. God doesn't want us or you to be overly concerned with or consumed by you, but he is. He's got a plan. He's got a plan. He is concerned about you. He's concerned about you, and it's evidenced in Jeremiah's explanation of God's plan in these verses. In these verses, 10, 12, 13, and 14, you're going to find seven I wills. Can I give them to you real quick? I know it's late. I'm going to give them to you, though, whether you tell me I can or not, because you need to hear these before you go. The food's it's, it's going to be all right. You're going to make it. Listen, I'm taking a little longer today because we're going to stay here anyway and celebrate and fellowship, right? So y'all forgive me. But listen, I need to give you these seven I wills before we leave here. Watch this. In verse 10, he says this, I will, these are seven I wills that, this, that explain his plan in verse 11. I will visit you. In other words, he says, I'm going to show up. In, 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 verse, in verse 10, he also says, I will fulfill my promise to you. I will do what I said I would do. Verse 12 says, I will hear you. My ears are not deaf. My arms are not short. I will incline my ear to you. Verse 14 says, I will be found. God says, I'm not hiding. I'm, I'm right here. I can, I, I'll be found. And in verse 14, it says, he says also, I will restore. No matter how hard it is, no matter what you've lost, no matter, no matter what's happened to you in the past, I'm going to restore. Even after 70 years of captivity, I'm going to restore. Then he says in verse 14, I will gather you. You know what that means? It means that he's saying, I will come personally myself and get you. I'm coming. Then he closes it in verse 14. He says, not only... Do I hear you? Not only am I going to show up and gather you, but I'm, I will bring you back. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to gather you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will return and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. I'm going to bring you back. Can I close with the thought from Paul, the Apostle Paul? And then I promise. I haven't said close yet. That's my first time. I didn't promise. It's my first time saying it. I promise. I promise this is it. Can I give you a word, a thought from Paul that I think will serve as a good big idea for us for this whole message? Can I give you a thought from Paul from Romans chapter 8? I said a little bit of it earlier, but I'm going to give it to you again in an expanded version. Here's what Paul says in Romans 8, uh, verses 28, 35, 38, and 39. He says this, and we know that 
All things work together for those that love the Lord, for those that are called according to his purpose. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, not even being in Babylon. We've got responsibilities while we're here because God has a plan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. We thank and praise you for your plan. We know that you have a place for us over in glory. Thank you, Lord, that you're keeping us while we're here. In Jesus' name.